Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just wanted to take a moment to thank our friends at CityAM for their continued support of Diversity Podcast, publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay on top of the very latest DNI debate. You may want to check out CityAM's own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion for the city because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Kenneth Olisa OBE and Paul Sesse. Kenneth is founder and chairman of Restoration Partners, the boutique technology merchant bank, and has enjoyed a technology career spanning more than 30 years. He started at IBM, having won a scholarship while studying at Cambridge, and in 1992, after 12 years as a senior executive at Wang Labs in the US and Europe, Ken founded Interregnum, the technology merchant bank. He was elected as a Fellow of the British Computer Society in 2006 and is currently Chairman of Interswitch, Africa's largest e-payments company. He has held many board positions as a former Director of Thomson Reuters, Deputy Chair at the Institute of Directors, and he serves as a Director on the board of the telecommunications firm Huawei. He's also President of London Youth, a member network of more than 450 community youth organisations. In 2015, the Queen appointed Kenneth as Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant for Greater London, and he was knighted in the 2018 New Year's Honours List. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Pleasure. Paul Sesse is the founder and CEO of Inclusive Companies Limited, Black Leaders, the National Diversity Awards, and the Inclusive Top 50 UK Employers List. And his business acumen that has spanned many years has always been with a social focus. With over 17 years' worth of experience in the diversity, equality and inclusion sector, Paul has worked with some of the world's largest organisations on their diversity and inclusion profiles. He has also worked with a wide range of communities, helping individuals and groups from a variety of backgrounds, all to achieve and empower disadvantaged groups right the way across the UK. Paul, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Julia. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I'm going to start with here we are in 2021. I'm very keen to hear what your main focus is for this year. So, Sir Kenneth, let me come to you first of all. As the Chancellor pointed out last year, this year is going to be an amazingly stressful one for probably most people in the UK. Uh, particularly, there's going to be a problem with youth unemployment. But, but what I've observed during the year of COVID is those people at the marginalised end of society are struggling a much, much greater deal than those who are relatively well off or very well off. And that will get worse as well in the, in the year. So from a charity perspective, I will be very much focused on pulling the levers available to me to try to help, particularly the micro charities, the ones for whom £5,000 would be life-changing, to be able to survive and to prosper, to do the sorts of things that they do, ranging, in my experience, from lending toys to disadvantaged children to providing, say, sanitary products for the daughters of refugees and, and immigrants and so on. And those kinds of charities are spread across London, and London depends on them, and they don't, they're not really above the, 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 on the radar screen of society, so they need extra help. So from a, from a lieutenancy charitable perspective, that'll be my principal focus. 
I'm also chairman of Shaw Trust, which very much works to help people get employment. And we're a vast charity working with the government to run big programmes for employment. And I can see that this year is going to be one where we really put our foot to the floor. And commercially, that was all a bit negative, really, but very important. Commercially, I have to say my various activities are all going rather well, touch wood. And I have a couple of uh, flotations of businesses in the pipeline, which I hope to be able to land during this year. So I will jump between those two, so the yin and the yang of my day job. And, and the economic focus for this year is going to be really fascinating in terms of seeing the role of large organisations and then also the grassroots requirements and, and how we can support grassroots as well. Paul, I know this is something that you think very keenly about, particularly, as I mentioned in your biography, you know, your remit is very much, you know, kind of across the UK, working with organisations, many of them might well be floating exactly, uh, you know, just, just building on what Sir Kenneth was saying. I'd love to hear what you're focused on at the moment. Well, my focus has always been about inclusion as a whole since I set my business up in 2006. And I think it's really important that organisations really do get it right as regards to their rhetorics when they're doing different benchmarks or they're doing inclusion initiatives. Simply because, you know, when you, when you individualise it, it can be kind of seen as, what about me? So if you're concentrating on LGBT or you're concentrating on race that year, it could be kind of like the other staff are going, well, what about us? You know, what are we going to be doing this year? You know, we still got a voice and we still feel that we've been discriminated against. So, you know, the Inclusive Top 50 and, and uh, the National Diversity Awards, as you know, is about inclusivity as, uh, as a whole. And we're really pleased that we can highlight so many communities. And, and in 2021, it's, it's so much more important now to highlight these communities because it's going to be a hard road in 2021 for communities because funding is obviously going to go. We've got to pay this massive debt up from the government. So I really want to work closely with the National Diversity Awards communities. But also to highlight to organisations that, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of redundancies. I'm going to try and be positive, but there is. And so when you're doing the redundancies, please make sure that you are diverse when you make these so that it's not just the marginalised people in society that are going to lose their jobs first and be fair in that. But on the plus side of that, when jobs are going to start being created, I think there's a real opportunity to get diverse teams at senior, senior level up there you know, and start again, maybe do a reset button and say, well, how can we do this properly? So this is another thing that I really want to get into some of the organisations that we work with, with the Inclusive Top 50 and Inclusive Companies Membership. Can I just say how much I appreciate both of your nods to positivity? We're very keen to be very realistic as well. So this is not seeing the world through rose-tinted glasses in any way, shape or form. Well, Julia, can I just come back on something? Because I think I can bring the two messages together earlier on. When I talk to people about where we are at the moment, as we develop, I would say it's a bit like winter. And as nature goes into winter, the things that are weak and frail and old die off. And the things that are vibrant and strong survive. And the things that will eventually burst forward get that opportunity and they burst forward. And I see lots of the commercial industrial landscape, which essentially is going to die off. And sadly, that is for the people who will lose their jobs or whatever at the time. It is inevitable that this happens. It has happened for all time in business. It's going to be accelerated. It's a seasonal shift. But the good news about the UK in particular is it's knee deep in people trying to do exciting, new, innovative things. Technology, which is my subject, will fuel much of that. But so what energy and then the government policies in the UK seem to be focused on precisely those things. So I'll make one point now, which I expect we'll return to later. But when I rant, as I do frequently and at any opportunity, 
about diversity and inclusion, I say, actually, everybody's thinking about this the wrong way. Everybody's thinking about this as a social justice issue, which, of course, it is, but that's not the right way to think about it. In the commercial world, think about it from a competitive advantage perspective. If you don't understand and empathise and relate to your customers, your supply chain, your staff, your recruitment pool, your regulators, if you have a regulator, the stakeholders that you are required to focus on by law in the UK, if you don't relate to them, you will be at a competitive disadvantage to someone, some organisation, which does. Therefore, when you're thinking about laying people off, hiring new people and so on, think about your competitive advantage and not just retaining mates or recruiting mates. I could not agree more. And and in fact, the entire editorial focus of the podcast, as our listeners, regular listeners will know, is very much looking at through the commercial lens and absolutely the, the advantage that is laid bare for all to take. And it, I think one of the things I'm most positive about is that enlightened leaders are getting that joke. They're really seeing that this is an amazing opportunity to be reimagining your organisation in the context of the future of work as well and workplaces and to be thinking about this very much through a, an inclusion perspective. Uh, Paul, do you want to welcome your thoughts at this point? I'm going to agree with Sakena. You know, I think throughout these difficult times of Donald Trump and the right wing media really coming through, I think organisations have really, you know, set the precedent as regards to their rhetoric and how they want to be more diverse. And, that, and that's and that's kind of the seed that I've been sown for this spring. We've been through winter, hopefully with, with a new presidency in, in America. I know it's, it's totally related to the UK, but, you know, hopefully the spring comes and now organisations can really, like I said before, get the rhetoric right as regards to inclusivity as a whole, you know, neurodiversity, BAME, especially with the black agenda coming forward as well. Just making sure that they get the message right and, uh, and we can really move forward quite quickly, I think as regards to inclusion for, for all in the public sector, private sector, housing, education and charity. And I think, you know, thank you for the nods to everything that's happening on a geopolitical level, because not only do we have listeners all over the world, but we operate, particularly in business, in an international climate. So all of this is very much interrelated. Well, I, I would like to, if I may, just, just to reflect on 2020. You know, we're talking about the black agenda. We're talking about the, the, the black conversation at the moment. And that's something that we as a podcast have taken very seriously as well. I mean, you're both great leading black role models in the industry in your own right as well. I'd love to hear your reflections on 2020, particularly, obviously, with the significance of race. Paul, can I come to you first of all? So with the death of George Floyd, it really hit home to a lot of people. And it was the first time that I'd seen uh, on LinkedIn and, uh, and uh, various other mediums that organisations were really taking note of black inclusion. And I didn't really want that to go away. So I phoned a good friend of mine called Fiona Daniel who used to be the head of DNI for UK for HSBC. And she said to me, well, what can we do about this? So I said, well, let's set up black leaders. And, you know, to, to my amazement, black leaders as a domain was actually still there. And that says a lot, really, as well, you know, as a domain name, to actually have blackleaders.co.uk in 2020. You know, I thought to myself, well, actually, there's so much work needs to be done. So anyway, off we popped and, and we said, well, what can we do in this arena? So we came up with various initiatives that we want to concentrate on. Obviously, black inclusion within the workplace, within communities and with education. And we called out volunteers within the first two weeks and we had a tremendous response. And so we went from zero to 120 volunteers, like I say, in a couple of weeks. And... 
when we brought all these people together, there was so much, and these weren't just black people, by the way, there was, these were allies as well from, from corporate organisations and from LGBT backgrounds and, and every aspect of society, all wanting to help with this cause, which was amazing. So we came up with different initiatives, for instance, Black Inclusion Week, our Black Inclusion Index, which has been developed in conjunction with Nielsen. We've also come up with an empowerment and leadership course, which is being developed by the Open University, which is going to be accredited qualification where black people can go there and basically you know empower themselves and then become leaders and then when organizations are talking about black inclusion we can say well they've done this leadership course and there's no excuses not to get them into the high echelons of, of their business and also we've created a toolkit which basically highlights to teachers which is predominantly white teachers in the UK you'd be a lot of black kids go through school and don't see anybody that looks like them to teach the teachers about racism, what that looks like, microaggressions, different cultural aspects of the black community and various other things like that. And that's already been piloted in schools across the UK. So we're really, really pleased at how that's gone. So that's kind of how it started and how it's blown up in five months to what we have now. And it's fantastic, isn't it? We came out with an episode straight after George Floyd was murdered. And one of the things that came through loudly and clearly was how organisations want to create an action plan. They want to think about best practice. And so, so it's wonderful to hear you talk about some very practical and very specific areas where you've been focusing as well. So, Kenneth, I'd love to hear your thoughts, your reflections on 2020. Well, it's been a seminal year. There's been a step change here. We've already spoken about what's happening in America. And I want to start with a seminality, as it were, about what's happening in America. One of the biggest challenges about being black in the UK is that lots of people in the UK think that America is the role model of black life. So people get irritated in this country as if we were American. I've lived and worked in America. They have a lot of very complicated, deep-rooted, centuries-old problems, which they struggle to resolve. It's not the case in this country. We obviously have, actually have a longer history, technically, than the American history, but we don't have the same history. And one of the frustrations that I've had and, and have ranted about and appear to have been listened to, maybe not me, but it has been listened to, is that when we teach black history in the UK, the school curriculum used to be full of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and so on, which have nothing to do with our history. Why aren't we talking about famous Jamaicans or Nigerians or, or whatever in the black history? So the net result is that we have a generation of children in this country who believe that their origins are the same and they suffer the same problems that the black Americans suffer. I have a lot of sympathy for black Americans, but it's not my problem to solve. My problem and responsibility is in this country. In this country, as I'm fond of saying to people, my father was a lawyer who came to this country after the Second World War, met my mother, married my mother, had me, abandoned us both, went back to Nigeria. One of my great friends' father came over as the son of an RAF mechanic in the Second World War from Jamaica. The only thing my friend and I've got in common is our height and the colour of our skin. We have nothing else in common at all. But to be lumped in in a block called black, therefore, is a ridiculous definition. And as Paul has pointed out, to then have the rest of AIM added to it. So I would ask everybody to just take a big step back and say, why on earth are we doing that? And the answer is, we're trying to label people for historical reasons of power. Because if I can label you as a lower caste person, I'm therefore a superior caste person, and that allows me to make something happen. And there is a very good book out recently published by a lady called Wilkerson about caste in America. And she makes the point that there is a difference between class and caste. I make that rant because I don't want people to transport the American experience to the UK. Unfortunately, they have, and it's deeply embedded. So what Paul is doing is providing antidote 
to that by saying, no, no, in this country, look what people do, look what you can do, look what the opportunities are. And in that, Paul and I are brothers. There's something we do have in common, absolutely in common, that we need our people to understand that actually the world is divided into two kinds, good and bad, and that's it. And at the top of the point there is, you mentioned earlier I'm chairman of a Nigerian company. I think you've misquoted it. It's actually not the largest African payments company. It's the largest Nigerian payments company. I think it's the second largest African one, but it is worth a billion dollars, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm very proud of it. But InterSwitch, we have our board meetings in Nigeria, so I go to Nigeria for those four, probably four times a year. I arrive in Nigeria with a Nigerian name, Olissa, black skin when I travel around in the UK. Can I get my key at the hotel? lobby? No. Why not? Because they see a white Englishman. Now, I'm not a white Englishman. I'm what I am. But they see a white Englishman. So I can't count the number of times I've had to fight to get my key from the receptionist in the various hotels I stayed in, because they say, no, no, you can't be called Alyssa, because that's an African name, and you're not African. Ah, no, my father. No, 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 you're white. So I have a ridiculous debate. So I come home to England, I'm black, I go there, I'm white. It's a pointless definition. And what Paul is doing is essentially amplifying the pointlessness of it and saying, you can do whatever your talents and will will take you to do in this country. Tragically, that isn't the case in all countries, but we can't solve all the problems of the world. This is very much a UK focus. So I'm very much a UK focused person. My focus is very much on the UK. I, I feel for the rest of the world, they must solve their problems. At the end of the day, we are competing as a nation with all the other nations on the planet. Brexit is a great proof positive of that. And I want to make sure that we have the best competitive advantage that we possibly can. And the time we could waste and the energy we could lose on blockhead labels is just lost energy. So I'm absolutely with Paul. Let's get the young people, let's get everybody to understand. And it's not just a race point. I mentioned I'm chairman of Shore Trust. I'm proud that we published the Disabled Power 100, where we take people... We, we ask for, we don't take anybody, we ask people to nominate disabled people to come forward and be ranked in just the same way that others have done it for Asians and Blacks and so on. Some of the most remarkable people in the UK, not just for what they've suffered and achieved, but for what they've delivered for other people, get to be highlighted in the Powerless 100. We need to take inclusion seriously and say it's about talent, because if we don't have talent, we won't be able to compete against the rest of the world. And if we deliver that talent and apply it properly, we'll create a wealth which drives a social justice. So I'm, I'm, I mean, Paul is quite polite about it. I think BAME is one of the most ridiculous adjectives on the planet. And I'll settle for good and bad. Wonderful. And it's, just, it's important, you know, when we think about these lists and when we talk about disability, we've had some amazing discussions on this podcast about, and particularly right now, when we think about the skills we need, resilience is one of the most obvious, and, and I don't want to be simplistic in this at all, but one of the most obvious traits of employees with disabilities is their extraordinary resilience. It's fantastic. Well, it's wonderful to hear about both your work and your initiatives as well. I wonder if we could take the conversation on almost like one ratchet shift along, if we may. When we talk about innovation, we talk about enterprise, we talk about the future of Britain, we think about the talent that's coming through with both your work as well. Love to talk about technology and thinking about how do we encourage more talent into technology. And so, Kenneth, of course, the obvious place is to start with you with your technology background. The the best thing about tech, tech is like football. There isn't any question 
if you are running a technology business, about where the people who are helping you produce your products, market your products, install your products, maintain your products. You don't care where they came from. You don't say to a programmer, what did your father do? Which school did you go to? Etc. You say, can you write code? And if so, is it any good? And the dearth of talent in technology is significant. So we don't have anything like enough people to be able to develop and install and maintain the system that will be required. 5G, I fundamentally believe that 5G will make the same impact on the world that the internet did. It is a fundamental step change in terms of technology. Put simply, 5G makes it possible to have zero latency, i.e. instantaneous response, processed by infinite compute power, i.e. compute power in the cloud. Now, it's a slight exaggeration. You can't quite have instantaneity and you can't quite have infinity, but it's pretty close. Unlike everything else we've done, which is slow and not particularly powerful. So the, the applications, the devices, the uses of technology as we go forward in the 5G universe, and there will obviously be a 6 and a 7 and 8G as well thereafter. So we are talking about mega, mega step changes in the ability to do things in society. And we are already short of talent and capability in that world. And it's not just programming, key though that is, it's also about, as I say, the selling, the marketing, the installing, the maintaining of these systems. And so the skills that are going to be required by those in a tech-centered world will just continue to explode. I think perhaps the best example, not British, unfortunately, but would be Amazon. At the end of the day, it's an online retailer. Of course it isn't. It spends more on R&D than I think we do as a nation each year. It's an enormous energy machine of technology. And anybody who's contemplating a career, you don't have, as I say, to be a left-lobe programmer. You can be a right-lobe marketeer. But the opportunities in this sector are enormous. And the UK is particularly well cited to be able to take advantage of that. So I think it's a wonderful uh, industry. It's done me extremely well, but I'm pleased to say I've given most of the well away, so it's helped lots of other people too. But we have trans- I've seen life be transformed. I could not have imagined when I wrote that first line of code all those years ago, damn it, all those decades ago, something like an iPad. I, couldn't, I could not have conceived. Even Dan Dare in the comic books who talked about science fiction and so on didn't have an iPad. So we've seen in one lifetime fundamental change. It's just the beginning. So I'd encourage everybody who's got a, an ounce of talent in the many areas I just spoke about to consider the technological opportunities. And because it's talent-driven, the barriers that Paul and I are devoted to tearing down are not there. And so it's just open for people with the right attitude and the right capabilities. And, you know, I'm deeply inspired by that because, as listeners will know, I'm in my day job, my life is spent in the world of financial services and technology. And we think of right the way across the UK about the potential uh, sort of post-Brexit, but obviously also globally. I mean, hosting conferences all over the world. And, and, I, and I'm really very inspired by this concept that actually when it comes to technology, it's completely inclusive because the barriers get ripped down and the definitions no longer apply. Can you code yes or no? It should be the only principle by which we apply. Fascinating, really fascinating. Thank you so much for your thoughts on that. Paul, if I may come to you as well, obviously your work with black leaders, I mean, leadership really matters. Role models really matter as well. I know you're keen to shine the light on role models around the UK, particularly with the National Diversity Awards. You know, what do you tell organisations when they're thinking about bringing through black leaders, influencers and also allies as well? Well, it's funny you should mention because the National Inclusive Companies and the Black Leaders is all one of the same to me. I'll just tell you the story about role models from my own personal point of view as well, if, if I may, and why it's important to bring the talent out in an individual. So I was fostered when I was a kid. 
I was born to a white mother and a, and a black father. It was a one night stand and I was born and my mum couldn't cope with having a, a mixed race baby, as it were. So basically I was gone and I was put in the foster care system, went to various foster homes and foster families and it wasn't a good experience. In the 70s, there was a lot of racism and when you go into a, a white school and you were the only black kid in there, you was like literally you know, wiping your skin to want to be white and getting racist abuse. And I remember one particular incident, it was there's a brown girl in the ring, but it was a brown boy in the ring and everybody's kicking you. Do you know what I mean? It's like, these are the experiences that I grew up with. And so my childhood was one of sorrow, really. And I, and I spent, when I left foster care, I spent many Christmases and birthdays by myself and didn't really have no one. And that's kind of one of my lowest points. But there was a role model that when I was 19, I moved to Liverpool from Leeds. And he took me under his wing, this guy called James Class. And he showed me that I could be someone. And I used to, he used to be a radio DJ for BBC Radio Merseyside. And he was just a, such an inspiration to me. He showed me that, you know, you can, you can present, you, you've got confidence. He got me to MC in, in clubs around Liverpool and, and in Ireland and, and the UK. And it was, just, it was just a catalyst for me to start believing in myself. Although it's a completely different industry to what I'm doing now, it, it really was a real shift in my life. And moving forward from that, I then got a job in sales and doing diversity and inclusion, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I, and I got frustrated about, you know, what organizations weren't doing as regards to, oh, the, the companies weren't doing that was promoting diversity and inclusion. So it was all about making money, but no actions was involved. And I'm all about actions and making sure that there's initiatives in there that, so companies can take away certain things so that they can embed it into their organization and actually move forward. So moving back, James actually passed away with cancer. And he didn't know how many people it influenced. So in Liverpool, it's got the largest cathedral in, in Great Britain, uh, the Anglican Cathedral. And he filled that cathedral with well wishes from the front to the very back. People from every aspect of society, whether it was, you know, LGBT, whether it's different races, different abilities. And he never knew what a role model he was to many people. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why I started the National Diversity Awards, because I wanted community leaders and people like James that don't have a voice to get heard, and we deliberately made the website so that they have their own web page, people can feed in and so on and so forth, and people can tell them about really what the brilliant work they're doing within their own communities. So it was, it was fabulous. And then when we talk about these role models that we find so, so many inspirational people from all walks of life, and then introduce them into the corporate world and say, this is what someone with autism looks like. This is what someone from a trans background looks like. This is what someone from an LGBT background, what they've achieved in their communities, but actually they, they've achieved so much. And you can take inspiration into your organisation to find out this is what talent looks like. And, and when you embed it to senior levels, then you're going to thrive and your profitability, as Kenneth said, will thrive as well. So when I'm talking about role models, it's important that everybody, if you get to the senior levels, becomes a role model as well. So that you never know when you give that person a helping hand, look what I've achieved. That person could achieve far more than me. And that's crucial. So that's the way I see role models and the power of role models within organisations. Well, I think that's a very inspiring moment to bring in Cynthia Akinsanya, who has some research to support today's discussion. In the 2021 Guider article, Racial Diversity in the Workplace, Boosting Representation in Leadership, the World Economic Forum stated the business case for diversity in the workplace is now overwhelming. Businesses with diverse management teams make 19% more revenue. 43% of businesses with diverse boards saw increased profits. Diverse companies are 70% more likely to capture new markets. 
Diverse teams make better decisions 87% of the time compared to individuals. 85% of CEOs with diverse and inclusive workforces said that they noticed increased profits. But in order to boost representation, businesses must actively discuss race in the workplace, get leaders vocally on board, revisit the hiring process, invest in BAME employees' career progression, and establish a culture of mentoring. Thank you, Cynthia, for all that research. It's available on our website. Now, before we went into the link, Sir Kenneth was talking about technology and the potential for technology as well. And, and Paul, I mean, you're, you're working with a lot of businesses. Technology is inherent in everything that they are trying to achieve in some way, shape or form. Love to hear your thoughts about uh, talent and technology. Uh, yeah, especially when it comes to recruitment of diverse people, I think it can be inherently biased, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, AI. So when somebody's going for a job, you know, with a postcode that they live at or, you know, the ethnicity that they are or the name, you know, AI can actually sort that and actually discriminate. So one thing that we're working on at the moment is working with a professor to actually take the bias out of recruitment which will work on algorithms so that, you know, it's based on skills, as uh, Kenneth said before, that, you know, if someone's got a neurodiversity, their brain might be wired completely different to somebody else's, but actually they're quite capable of doing that job because they're absolute genius, in, 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 especially within technology and data and, and programming and, and so on and so forth. Or, you know, someone might be creative in, 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 from a black background or from an LGBT background and just basically placing people to their skills rather than, their ethnicity or their role that they've been through in life. I think that's really important. And I think one of my missions is to basically get AI so that it is non-biased and that we can basically have a fairer society for all and so that my kids can go forward and, and get the active promotions that they deserve. Uh, so Kenneth, uh, anything you're keen to talk about or has been inspired so far? So I thought Paul's story was remarkable and I'm really pleased that you, you shared it with us today. I think there's a very big message that comes across from Paul and Ken on the show today. I, I was born six years after the end of the Second World War. It's hard for people today to have any imagination what life was like in the United Kingdom at that time, in England at that time. My favourite playground was a bomb site where German bombs had fallen, the houses had been pulled down by the council, it was full of really exciting things and danger for small boys to play in. It was wonderful. Obviously, the, we don't have those kinds of environments today. The house I grew up in, outside lavatory, no bathroom. You just take the bath off the side of the outside lavatory, bring it in and fill it with water, etc. And now I'm the Queen's representative in the city of Greater London. That journey is a British dream story. And it's the point that Paul is making about it doesn't matter where you start from, it's where your ambition is to take you. Children in care have enormous problems, as Paul just alluded to on this call. And again, Shore Trust, it's one of the big areas of our focus on interest. Our chief executive, a recently retired senior RAF officer, Air Vice Marshal, was himself in care when he was growing up. The lived experience is so key. But in our country, people don't talk about their backgrounds. People assume when they see the Queen's representative in Greater London that I, my father did whatever, I went to Eton, the obvious things that happened, as opposed to I grew up in a two-up, two-down with an outside laboratory. You meet Paul, you've got no idea you grew up in care because people assume someone that's doing this, obviously played football, became a DJ, did something, forget the rest of the story. We, who have achieved in this country, need to tell our stories more and more so that everybody knows it's possible because the bad people 
trying to persuade everybody it's not possible. And if I can persuade you it's not possible, you're either angry and I didn't take your power, or you're repressed and I don't need to worry about you. Actually, this is the most wonderful country to live in. The opportunities abound. And we need to tell everybody that. We need to prove that it's true. And then we need to see people enjoy it. And the spring and the summer for the UK will be wonderful. But it doesn't have to be a UK story. It's a human story. And the point is true to every country and every, and every individual. And the other thing I would just say from Paul's point about his amazing, I have to say, really uplifting story about the man that made the difference to you. When I lecture young people about growing up in the UK, taking advantage of what can happen, I say one of the most, most impactful things in my life has been the kindness of strangers. And I can list scores of people who helped the little black boy at school, the young teenager, the undergraduate, the graduate, the junior manager, the senior manager, went out of their way to help me be better at what I was doing. And it's from that that I developed what I consider to be a sacred duty to help other people, because that's what makes the world go round. So I was doing the kindness of strangers rant there, but the kindness of strangers is really key, I think, and people should therefore help other people as opposed to not. So again, when I talk to young people, one of the great privileges of my life, of which there are many, I have to say, is that I was able to get for myself a coat of arms. And as a small boy, probably every small boy has produced a coat of arms, and probably every small girl has produced a coat of arms, or possibly the drawing of the castle in which she will be princess. I don't remember. But I do remember doing my own coat of arms. I now have a proper coat of arms from the College of Arms, which is rather important. But if you have a coat of arms, and if you produce your own coat of arms, the best bit about it is the motto. The reason the best bit about it is the motto is because you have to summarise all of the things that you stand for in a tiny number of words in English, French, German, or Latin. Uh, if you want to be accessible, I'd recommend English. So if you think about it, if your listeners think about if you had to capture what you really stand for in a motto that you would attach to a coat of arms, which in olden days would have been the way that people in battle differentiated each other, what would it be? Mine is do well, do good. And I think the great message in life is you should do your best which is the whole point about talent, and then you should help other people, which is the doing good piece. And if you look back over the great examples of history, that's what has powered the human race. Perfect. Great. Thank you. The final question I'd love to ask you both, and it's a question I ask all of our guests, and particularly right now when we're heading into, I love your analogy and your description of coming out of the winter, looking at the spring and the summer, but I am quite concerned that as we are navigating tough times, that diversity and inclusion could well and easily fall off the corporate agenda. And Paul, give us some compelling reasons why diversity and inclusion must remain high. Well, I was in business in the last recession, and obviously when there is a recession and people are going through hard times, people want someone to blame. And that's often, you know, if you remember back to the last recession, it was British jobs for British workers, very anti-immigrant. And it was the public sector, actually, that was really making headway with diversity inclusion post-2008. And when the recession happened, literally teams of 20 went down to one or zero. And it's just like you're calling them, they're going, well, do you know what? It's not something that we can concentrate on. We're making redundancies at the moment. And and it's we, something that we just, you know, we're not thinking about. And actually it put diversity and inclusion back a good five, 10 years after the great work that people were doing for four, 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And I felt that there was... Before the recession happened, people was becoming more acceptance of diversity and inclusion. But like I said before, as soon as something happens and jobs get lost, they need someone to blame. 
So I'd implore organisations not to give up their teams to actually, you know, make sure that moving forward when we do come to spring and summer that you recruit in a diverse way. It's so important. There's so much talent out there. And actually, one of the things that I'm really passionate about, I am from Liverpool, I'm from Leeds originally, and the North-South divide. Because you go down to London, you see lots of black people, you see lots of people from diverse backgrounds in organisations, not at every level, but in quite senior levels as well. When you come up north, you barely see, especially in Liverpool or Leeds, you'll barely see anybody of a diverse background in any boardroom or any senior level out there. And so I really want to tackle the north-south divide and get organisations really to concentrate to embed diversity and inclusion from the very top, at the very top, and retain the talent up north instead of the talent going down to London. We've got so much talent. And actually, I think there's going to be a shift as well because London, for me, is, is in its own bubble. And actually, organisations now are starting to look up north to have their head offices up north because they know it's cheaper rents and maybe cheaper labour as well. And so when they're coming up north, again, recruiting in colour, as it were. Absolutely. And levelling up from the grassroots right up to the board level. Fantastic. Paul, thank you very much for your thoughts on that. And, and so Kenneth, as to see us out on the show, you know, we, we talked about the competitive advantage that diversity and inclusion offers to organisations. We've talked about the technology being... Uh, really the opportunity to uh, to think more about the skills than necessarily the characteristics of an individual or the identity. Uh, give, give us some good reasons about why you believe diversity and inclusion must remain high on the corporate agenda. Imagine you're the player captain coach of a football club, a local football club, and you're at the bottom of your league. And you think, what am I going to do to get back up into the middle or the top of my league? And you look at your team and you think, you know what, I've hired lots of people like me. I was a goalkeeper when I played, and I've got 11 goalkeepers in my team. I think I'm beginning to work out why I'm not scoring any goals and I'm not moving up the league table. When things get difficult, the worst thing you can do is to reduce the gene pool by hiring yourself. By obvious statement, it's competitive advantage. You need someone that understands your customers, your supply chain, etc., as I said before. So the challenge for a business, an organisation, is how do you incentivize the middle managers to realise that and make it happen? And it's quite hard because a middle manager is given five KPIs, which are to do with revenue and costs and so on, for the quarter or the month, possibly the year. So competitive advantage doesn't mean a lot to them because they're busy on the treadmill. But for the organisation to grow and survive, it's got to take a broader view. So the people at the top of organisations that will survive and prosper in this spring of which I have spoken have got to acknowledge that those who don't understand their customers, their supply chain, their regulators, their staff and their recruits will be at a potentially fatal disadvantage to competitive organisations which do. There could not be a more compelling reason, particularly as we head into the spring, as we head into the summer. It's, gentlemen, it's been the most fantastic conversation. I'm immensely grateful. So, Kenneth, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being with us today. Pleasure. And Paul Sesse, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to see you as always. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in to Diversity Podcast. I'm Julia Street, so we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. 
Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.